According to the book of Genesis, God created mankind in his image, and he created us in two distinct forms, male and female. What Genesis doesn't tell us, though, is what becomes readily apparent through observation, and that is just how different men and women are. I want us to take a look at some things that highlight these differences. For example, look at that picture. This is the control panel for male emotions. Really basic. On, off, very simple. And then let's contrast that with the control panel for female emotions. Does that resonate with everybody? A Little more complex, isn't it? Men and women are wired by God differently. We also think, we we also have a different approach to memory. Here's an interesting quote from Albert Einstein. Women always worry about things that men forget, like anniversaries, right guys? Men always worry about things women remember, (laughs) like the last time we messed up. (laughs) And then let's look at the next slide. How about unspoken communication? Two guys meet and say hi, and we're just focused on each other. And what happens when women meet? They are evaluating each other on all kinds of different levels, looking at the hair and the jewelry and the apparel and the shoes. But when we leave church, Julie and I might say, oh, who'd you talk to today? And I might say, well, I had a great chat with Robin about X, Y, and Z. And I might say, well, who did you talk to? And she will not only be able to relate who she talked to, but how that person was dressed, maybe what they were thinking and feeling, right? because we're wired differently by God. One more slide. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) The world's perfect vacuum cleaner developed by a guy. (laughs) I love that slide. And I have this feeling, I have this feeling that if we had that around the house and our wives came to us and said, would you vacuum the house, honey? We'd go, you betcha. The differences between men and women are incredible. And it can be a lot of fun at times to laugh at some of these things. But here's what's most incredible. Sometimes God takes a man and a woman, two very different creatures that fully reflect God's image, and he invites us to share together life as a married couple. And not only that, God says, when I bring you together, my goal is that you become one. Now, humanly speaking, that seems like an overwhelming task to be united with someone so different. But it's not. Because God, as the creator of marriage, has some wonderful advice to help husbands and wives enjoy a rich and flourishing life together. And that's the primary focus of today's Bible passage. Excuse me, now you might wonder, why does the Apostle Paul offer specific advice to married couples and not to single people? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, apart from this passage in Ephesians, we do find advice for single people. But here in this case, Paul is speaking to people in a city where male-female relationships are hugely distorted. 
Healthy marriages are essential for an orderly society because they create the nucleus for healthy family life. And healthy marriages are desperately needed in the city of Ephesus. And the believers need to know how to create healthy marriages. And so what we're going to find here is some timeless advice for married couples. But at the same time, we must recognize that marriage is not for everyone. And within God's family, we must be careful not to treat the unmarried as second-class citizens. Over the years, I've had a number of single people, particularly single women, share with me some of the well-meaning but hurtful comments they've received from others in the church. Comments which imply that these women never will be whole until they're married. And we need to not do that. Because every person in God's family, married or unmarried, has incredible value in our life together. Now before we explore this passage, there's two things that we need to keep in mind. First, even though Paul's talking about marriage, he includes these instructions in a letter written to the whole church. Isn't that interesting? It was the custom at that time when the churches received a letter from an apostle, it would be read publicly to the congregation when they gathered. And as we get into this passage in Ephesians, which is all about marriage, Paul doesn't say, okay, if you're single, take a break. You know, head off to the side, go grab a cup of coffee. I'm just going to talk to the married couples now. He doesn't do that. And why not? Because everyone in the church needs to know what a godly marriage looks like. And you might not be married now, but you might someday, and so it's good to know what the marriage principles are. Or you may be unmarried, but you might be in position, a position to give some advice to a friend or family member, and you need to know how to advise them based on God's truth. Everyone benefits when the whole church knows what God expects in the marriage relationship. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Paul approaches this topic in a strategic way. Back in that day, it was very common for Greek philosophers to write what they called household codes. And these were codes of conduct for couples and parents and children and others living in the home. And these Greek codes of conduct did not reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And so what Paul's going to do here is write a Christian household code. In other words, this is really crafty. He adopts a culturally familiar tool and he uses it to lay out principles that are distinctly different from the culture. You see, it's a way to point people in a new direction without bad-mouthing the culture. Paul doesn't say, oh, Greek household codes are garbage. He just gives followers of Jesus a better household code. And here's the lesson for us. Sometimes, rather than trash our culture, we just need to show people a better way. 
So with this in mind, let's take a look into God's Word and see what we can learn. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, Paul, at this point, is not yet talking about marriage, but verse 21, as I mentioned last week, is really key. It's a wrap-up to what we talked about last week, and it's a lead-in now to what's going to follow. And this word submission is problematic for some people, and as I mentioned last week, it simply means to voluntarily yield to or defer to another person. And because the word submission has some baggage in our culture, I want us to hear it perhaps a bit differently today. So I'm going to use the word deference, because that's one of the definitions, to defer to. And mutual deference is a distinctive aspect of our life together in the church. You see, when we think of organizations, we often think in terms of hierarchy and authority, like boss and employee. In the family, we think of parent child. In the church, though, even where we have hierarchical roles, no one is supposed to boss other people around. For example, we have elders who are overseers of the church, yet they lead us as servants, not as kings or bosses. And we have the privilege of choosing to defer to them and to follow their lead. And the result of our deference is respect. Whenever you and I voluntarily defer to someone else, we're showing respect for their position or their gifts or their talents or their abilities. And this same idea permeates all of our relationships in God's family and it flows into the marriage relationship. For example, when I first met Julie in college and we began dating, we were boyfriend and girlfriend, but we also were brother and sister in Christ. According to the scriptures, then, our relationship was one of mutual submission. So as our relationship grew, we learned to defer at appropriate times and in appropriate ways to the other person's superior knowledge or insights or expertise. We learn to defer to each other's needs, putting them ahead of our own. And by doing so, we were demonstrating respect for each other. And then when we got married, this practice of mutual deference didn't go away. It simply was expressed differently based on the principles that Paul now is going to lay out. Let's continue on in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, as I said last week, it's really good for us to ignore the subheadings in our Bible translations because they're not part of the original Greek text. And if you have an ESV Bible open, you're going to notice that it inserts a subhead between verse 21 and verse 22, which can cause us to view them as unrelated. But that would be an erroneous conclusion because they actually are directly linked in the original Greek text. And we know this because the word submit does not actually appear in the original Greek text of verse 22. 
Here's a literal rendering of verse 21 and 22. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to the husbands as to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Now that's actually a very common device in ancient Greek. You leave out a word because it's in the prior sentence and by doing so you make it clear that you're simply continuing your line of thought. It's as if Paul is writing, all Christians must learn to defer to one another in appropriate ways. And now I'm going to explain the distinctive way this works within a marriage. So first I will describe how wives defer to their husbands. And then I'm going to describe how husbands defer to their wives. And why does Paul begin with the wives? It's because of the cultural situation in Ephesus. As I've said before, this city worships the fertility goddess Artemis, and women are prized almost exclusively as sexual objects. And they are taught to lure and entice men because that's how they have worth in that culture. Paul wants them to have a new understanding of their worth in the kingdom of God. And the first step in establishing healthy male-female relationships is to have women not offer themselves cheaply to multiple men. That boundary puts the brakes on harmful and degrading behavior. And it creates an opportunity for men and women to learn new ways to behave in relationship to one another. And I think it's helpful if we can see this passage through the eyes of first century women. In our culture and in our day, we, t- we read these words and most people focus on the word submit. That's the one we want to wrestle with. But you know what? The women in Ephesus would read this and they would focus on the word husband. And they would understand that God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, is inviting them into a life of marital faithfulness and commitment. What Paul is doing here is encouraging each wife to be a one-man woman. And this marital relationship that they're being invited into, submission to a Christian husband, it's not subjecting yourself to physical, relational, or sexual domination as would be experienced in the normal Ephesian culture. But submission to a Christian husband is choosing to follow a spiritual leader. Paul wants wives to view marriage as ultimately a spiritual relationship which finds a parallel in the relationship between Jesus and his church. So a godly woman does not dishonor herself as a sexual object to be used as the pleasure of men. She commits herself to her husband and she makes every effort to honor and respect him by deferring to him at appropriate times and in appropriate ways. Here's the challenge. Paul doesn't say respect your husband if he's respectable each and every moment of each and every day. God asks wives to respect their husbands. Even in those moments when you think he doesn't deserve it. (laughs) 
But see, here's where the parallel with Jesus comes in. If your respect for the Lord Jesus is constant, then in the same way, those are the words Paul uses, in the same way, you should try to demonstrate constant respect for your husband. And that's a choice that a wife must continually make. And so when your husband stubbornly refuses to ask for your help and makes a mess out of something, and when he forgets to pick up his dirty socks, and when he leaves beard bristles in the sink after shaving without rinsing out the bowl, whatever he does that annoys you, you can choose to respect him anyway. And when you need to express frustration or disappointment, and you will, do it in a way that still allows him to see your respect for him. You see, you can disagree with your husband without demeaning him. Here's how this works in my marriage because I have some habits that drive Julie nuts. When I come home from work, the first thing I do is head for the mail. Now I know we live in a digital age, but I like to have all our bills come in the mail, and I have this driving need to go to the mailbox and make sure I get everything and get those hard copies out and get everything laid out and organized so I know what's coming so I can manage our finances. And early in our marriage, it used to drive Julie crazy. You know, hi honey, I'm home, off to the mailbox. (laughs) She didn't want that, she wanted me to sit down and talk to her first. But she ultimately realized that particular habit wasn't going to change. And so she accepted it. And when she talked to me about it, she never did so in a way that made me feel disrespected. Here's another way I irritate her. I've always worked long hours, both in the marketplace and in ministry, and and when I get very tired, I can snap at Julie in very inappropriate ways. And obviously that's hurtful to her, but you know what? Her response is not to respond in kind. What she does is she gently calls it to my attention, and she does it without putting me down. So no matter what mistakes I make in our life together, and I make plenty, I always feel her deep and abiding respect. And that makes it so much easier to apologize when I mess up. And so Paul's advice to wives You defer to your husband by consistently demonstrating to him and to the world that you respect him. And when you do, you may be surprised at how your husband will live up to your high expectations. Because by demonstrating your respect, you will be helping him to flourish. Now there's one other part to this passage that we often misunderstand. We read these words in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, And we often tend to think of it in terms of authority and hierarchy. But that's simply not the case. Because in marriage, the model for headship is not a king or a boss, 
but Jesus. And how does Jesus exercise his headship over the church? Through sacrificial love. And that's what Paul addresses next as he talks about the way that husbands defer to their wives. Let's continue on in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Key phrase, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is potent. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. In ancient Ephesus, a wife was the property of her husband, she was a tool of her husband. And she was there for his pleasure. He could dispose of her anytime he wanted. And God, speaking here through the Apostle Paul, sets out a completely different standard for men. He's saying, husbands, your wife is not there to serve you. You are to serve her with the kind of faithful, sacrificial love modeled by Jesus. So devote yourself to your wife. And just as Jesus is faithful to his church, you need to be faithful. So you need to be a one-woman man. You don't run around with others. And you don't lord it over your wife. But through your love, you strive to bring out the best in her so that she will flourish. Being the head of the wife means the husband follows in the footsteps of Jesus and pours out his life for the woman that God has entrusted to his care. And it's a radical restructuring of the male-female relationship and it emphasizes that marriage is a spiritual union based on the example of Jesus. And just as a wife is to respect her husband even in those moments when she thinks he doesn't deserve it, Husbands are to give sacrificial love to our wives, even when we think she doesn't deserve it. And that's because Jesus is our role model. Jesus' love for me is constant. And therefore, my love for my wife should be demonstrated constantly. And that's true for every husband. So when your wife keeps trying to talk to you in the middle of the football game, <laughs> when, he has, when she has 20 outfits in her closet and claims she has nothing to wear and needs to go shopping, when you've told her about 100 times that you hate meatloaf and she keeps serving it to you, <laughs> whatever it is she does that drives you nuts, love her anyway. Love her sacrificially. And at those moments when you must express your disappointment and frustration, and you will, do it in a way that doesn't demean her or threaten her so that she will feel secure in your love for her. 
Husbands, we can disagree with our wives without demeaning them. Here's how this works in my marriage. Because Julie has some habits that drive me nuts. She's a very gifted woman on so many fronts, but she has absolutely no sense of direction. Over the years, almost everywhere she goes, I have to give her directions, even if she's been to that particular destination dozens of times. And even with GPS, she's been known to get lost. (laughs) And I get the call, usually interrupting me in what I'm doing, how do I get to where I'm going? (laughs) That's frustrating. It's annoying. My wife is also a pack rat. We have some boxes in our garage that we have moved from California to Illinois, back to California, up to Oregon, and never once opened. (laughs) We've just been storing them for decades. Now, I will say in Julie's defense, she's become better about not being such a pack rack. But it's tremendously frustrating to be hauling these boxes all over the country that we never ever use the stuff that's in them. But here's the thing whatever Julie does that annoys me, I try very hard not to respond in any way that would undermine the sense of security that she feels in my love. And so I never insult her, I never call her names. I don't attack her character. I want her to know that even in the midst of an argument that my love for her is complete and total and unconditional. And husbands, we need to remember that our marriages are built upon a foundation of mutual submission. They defer to us in certain ways and we defer to them in certain ways. And we defer to them by loving them sacrificially, by putting their needs before our own. And according to verse 27, our sacrificial love produces a more beautiful, more loving, more radiant wife. We love them in such a way that they flourish emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. We love them so they will respect us more. We love them so they will follow our lead as we strive to to draw them into a closer relationship, not just with us, but with Jesus Christ. Because the most important leadership we provide in the home, men, is spiritual leadership. Our primary role is to set a godly tone for the home and for our life together and to make every effort to build our marriage on a foundation of faith. And so to summarize what Paul has said, here's how we practice mutual submission in our marriages. Again, mutual submission is part of what we all do with each other within God's family. We do it in a special way within marriage, and we do it by husbands offering sacrificial love and by wives offering respect. Each partner looks for opportunities to defer to the other as a sign of God's work in our hearts. And we do this not just to have a good marriage, but to honor God. Because at root, marriage is a spiritual union. And that's how Paul wraps up this passage. Verse 31. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Boy, that talks about commitment, doesn't it? And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So after giving very specific instructions to husbands and wives, Paul concludes with some summary comments to give us a bigger picture. And he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to remind us that marriage was created by God as as a unique union where a man and a woman become one flesh. And that is really powerful because that That's the only human relationship God ever describes that way. And it's pretty wild when you think about it. For example, Julie and I were complete strangers, and God brought us together, and he formed us into one. And he said, you now are one flesh. And as a result of our union, we've produced children, which actually are the fruit of our bodies, but we're not in a one flesh relationship with our kids. This one flesh relationship is unique to marriage. And it's a reflection of the unique union between God and his people. The intimacy of our relationship as husbands and wives is designed to display to the church and to the world the intimacy of our connection with the living God. And so yes, marriage is for physical, emotional, and relational intimacy between a man and a woman, but Christian marriage is so much more than that. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ at the center and therefore it ultimately is a spiritual union. The Lord wants the world to know that Jesus is in our marriages. And they will know that when we love each other and respect each other as God asks us to do. One of the greatest examples I ever heard about a husband demonstrating Christ-like sacrificial love comes from the life of Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. He was a pastor, a scholar, and a professor. And like many men, his professional life was a huge part of his personal identity, and his work gave his life great meaning, but he also was a very devoted husband. For most of his life, he had a single-minded goal. He wanted to become the president of a theological seminary, which is a graduate school devoted to training people for ministry. And after more than 30 years of hard work, More than 30 years of personal preparation, after 30 years of a lot of personal sacrifice, Dr. McQuilkin achieved his goal. He was working as a faculty member at a seminary, and they appointed him to be the president. Can you imagine how that must have felt? The culmination of a lifelong dream, and he was filled with joy and eager to live out that dream in this new role. But after just a short time in his new position, his wife's mental health began to fail. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. 
And the doctors told Dr. McQuilkin that she was deteriorating so quickly that she would need constant care within just a few months. And so less than a year after achieving the position that he'd worked for his entire adult life, Dr. McQuilkin resigned to devote himself to the full-time care of his wife. And many, many Christians criticized his decision. And their argument went like this. Dr. McQuilkin, you're in a position to afford the best possible care for your wife, and her mind soon will be gone, and she won't even know who's caring for her. If you put her in a home, then you'll be free to carry on the significant ministry God has given you. The kingdom of God will be harmed if you step down from the presidency. Dr. McQuilkin responded to that criticism with these words. There's no higher calling upon my life than the call to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think the kingdom of God will be harmed less by my resignation than it would be by the poor example I would set if I chose to act in a way that my conscience tells me is a compromise upon my marriage vows. The seminary can find another president. My wife cannot find another husband. And so because he believed he was called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to love his wife sacrificially, Dr. McQuilkin sacrificed his lifelong dream and he became a full-time caregiver for his wife. And that task consumed the next five years of his life before she passed away. Not, Not every husband's in a position to do what he did. But what a powerful example was sacrificial, Christ-like love. And I have this feeling that if he loved his wife like that throughout their marriage, she had no problem respecting him and deferring to him and honoring him as a spiritual leader of their home. So to wrap up, as we've seen here in Ephesians 5, Paul offers some very rich insights about how to, how to have a flourishing marriage. And as we've worked our way through the passage, there may be some parts of this that have caused you to say, ooh, ooh I'm, I'm kind of falling short. It happens to me all the time when I read scripture, actually. Here's the reality, none of us has a perfect marriage. And when we do find ourselves falling short, God doesn't want us to beat ourselves up. And what we should do in response is to let God help us identify areas where we can grow. And then we pray and we take some steps to make progress. Because marriage is a lifetime journey. A lifetime journey toward oneness. And we can make it a joyful one as husbands and wives, as we learn from each other and grow together. 
And as we think about these principles Paul shared, I think we can apply them differently based on where we find ourselves in life. For example, you might be here and you might be married someday, but you're not yet. Well, then ask God to help you grasp these principles now so that you'll be ready to use them when you become married. For those who aren't married, ask God to help you discern how to apply this principle of mutual deference in your own relationships with other members of God's family. Ask God to help you grasp these principles of of a godly marriage because there may be times when even though you're not married, you might be just the right person to give some good advice to a friend or family member who needs some help. And for those of us who are married, my prayer is that God would help us embrace and apply his wisdom so that our marriages will flourish emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually. And when that happens, then we each will be able to enjoy a rich and vibrant life together. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for loving us. And for ta- thank you for teaching us about love in so many different ways. And in particular, thank you for teaching us what, what love and respect looks like within a marriage. For those of us who are married, help us never to forget that our marriages are, first and foremost, a way to experience and to express your love in our lives together. And help us as husbands and wives to increasingly learn how to love each other and respect each other so that we can defer to each other at appropriate times and in appropriate ways. And as we embrace your wisdom in our marriages, may the world see Jesus in us. May we show the world a better way, a richer way to be husbands and wives. In Jesus' name, amen.